Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Matteo Skeapor, whose debut novel, Black Buck, is out now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Mateo's work aims to empower people of color to seize opportunities for advancement, no matter the obstacle. He was a 2018 Rhode Island Writers' Colony writer-in-residence, and his writing has appeared in Entrepreneur, Lit Hub, Catapult, The Rumpus, Medium, and elsewhere. He lives in Brooklyn. I'm not afraid to write. I'm not afraid to just go loose on the page and get crazy and break convention. And I don't have a lot of these institutional mandates in my head of how things have to be done. Black Buck tells the story of Darren Vender, a young black man plucked from his barista job and given a role at the mysterious and very successful startup in the same midtown high-rise where he'd just been slinging coffee. Written in first person in the style of a business self-help book, it follows Darren as he's dropped into a fast-paced, aggressive, and deeply strange new work environment. Here, he is immediately given the nickname Buck and encouraged down his new career path by the company's charismatic founder, a man named Rhett, who sees potential in Darren, but who also says things like, race is a dirty word, but diversity isn't. Black Buck is a sharp, propulsive take on race, capitalism, startup culture, ambition, and a dozen other ideas that Matteo weaves together in a way that flirts with absurdity and surrealism, all the while staying grounded in and true to the world he's created. It's an impressive feat and an energetic read. And while there are Mad Hatter moments, Matteo doesn't gloss over any complexity. Instead, absurdity and realism work together to underscore the impact of each. The book is informed in part by Matteo's own experience in the startup world. In this episode, we talk about writing from personal experience while also leaving room for invention. We also talk about playing with the intimacy of first-person point of view, managing plausibility, and what we learn from the novels we don't sell. At WMFA's Patreon page, Matteo and I talk about point of telling and addressing the reader directly in your work. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. So, you know, I kept having as I was reading the book um, is it just felt like you had so much fun writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of where I wanted to start. I don't know if that's true. I think a lot of it is like, you know, the voice is so, is so effervescent and so boisterous and so persuasive, right? Cause he's a salesman. So there's this real, um, energy that you get swept up in as a reader. Um, and so I kind of just wanted to start by asking like, you know, if that is any translation to what the writing process felt like for you. Effervescent. Now that's the word. I like that. <laughs> I'm, uh, I haven't heard that yet, so I, I really like it. So it's uh, effervescent, like a sparkling beverage. But um, <laughs> you, you're, you're exactly right, Courtney. I mean, I had so much fun while I was writing it. And for me, that was a top priority. Um, at the point that I'd written Black Buck, I had written two novels that didn't go anywhere, right? At least in terms of the goals that I had for them. I didn't gain representation from an agent. They didn't get published. Um, but I don't really look at them as failures, right? Because coming from the startup world that I was in, I really um, hold closely the maxim of fail fast. So those two novels, you know, was I bummed out when, when they didn't go anywhere? I definitely was, but I knew that I had to keep going. And by the time that I began Black Buck, January 8th, 2018, I just remember it. Um, I remember where I was. I said, you know what? I'm going to write the books that I want, how I want it for the people that I want it to serve. But first and foremost, it has to be fun. There has to be a ton of energy because there's no way I'm going to dedicate time to something that's a slog. 
Absolutely. Yeah. What what you just described, I think, isn't uncommon, kind of the like sort of desk drawer full of, of drafts of other projects that didn't really work out. And I do think that there is like a um, there's a sort of, I know, at least speaking from my own experience, like this sense, this kind of self-consciousness that you almost need to like exfoliate off before you can like, um, you know, I don't know anything about what your other two projects were like, but I think there is sort of this like burning down of the, of there's some like kind of, um, what's the word I want? Like, it's almost like this like ego layer that you have to like power through. And then it's like, wait, what do I actually want to be doing? And instead of what do I like, feel like this should look like or the type of book I feel like I should write. Yeah, I mean, wow. I can't wait to read your writing because you just said exfoliate <laughs> off. Another good E word. Um, that, I, I've also never heard of that, but that's exactly what it is, right? Getting rid of this crust or layer of self-doubt and all these other things that we have to work through when we're beginning a new project, especially, you know, funny, this is called WMFA. I don't have my MFA. I don't have any formal writing background. So I had to work through a lot of that and realize um, what were the pros of not having that formal background and then what were definitely some cons that I have. And it was like that slowing off of, of that crust um, that I needed to do in order to write this book. So yeah, exfoliation, perfect. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit more about that sort of those sort of pros and cons you mentioned, because I think that, you know, a lot of folks who listen to the show that I know that's a question that comes in a lot. And I don't have an MFA either. I have a I have a master's in journalism, but I, you know, I don't have kind of fiction writing training. And so I've had some of those same thoughts, too. And what was kind of your your thought process about how is this an advantage and how is it a disadvantage? Yeah. And, and in my opinion, the pros uh, definitely outweigh the cons. But again, that's just my experience. A couple of the pros are that I'm not afraid to write. I'm not afraid to just go loose on the page and get crazy and break convention. And I don't have a lot of these these rules and um, institutional mandates in my head of how things have to be done. And I'm not saying that all MFAs entail that, but something I do know is that you know a big part of the MFA process is the workshop. So you are naturally going to have tons of voices critiquing or giving you feedback on your work, which can make you just like, I was about to say, say trigger shy, but it's more like keyboard shy, right? You're like afraid to write sometimes. I found that with friends who say, hey, I can't really write that much because, you know, I went through my MFM and I'm afraid to write. However, if I do write 10 pages a month, I know that they're tight. And that for me is a potential con, right? I'm not afraid to write. But um, I have, I'm not as tight on the page, at least in the initial draft, as some people who have gone through their MFAs. Um, an editor once told that to me, and not, not someone who edited Black Buck, but someone who looked at it early on. She said, you know, you're, you're pro, Mateo, of not having an MFA is you're, you're not afraid of writing. But the con is that you're not as disciplined on the page as you probably would have. So those are just, you know, one pro, one con. But Something that I think an MFA affords a lot of people, and I once asked an author after an event, basically like, why, why did she get an MFA? Because it seems like it's just some, a big networking event if you know how to do it right. And she said, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, I paid like 20 to 30K, and I was able to learn from Paul Beatty and all of these other people who I can count as my mentors. And obviously these people have connections that they'll wield if they believe in you and they believe in your talent. For me, that was, again, I, I try to look at every con as like a pro really, but that was something that I had to work through when I was breaking into the industry is not having any connections. But fortunately, I had a background as, as a salesperson. So rejection or 
um, not having the red carpet rolled out for me, some random dude who wants to come into this industry, right? And I'm not entitled. I didn't think that anyone had to, right? But but not having a warm welcome or someone saying, hey, Mateo, I'm going to take you under my wing. You're going to be my, my little, you know, writerly literary brother, and I'm going to show you how it's done. Um, just forced me to rely on a lot of the skills that I had while working in sales and tech startup, you know, uh, self-inspiration, motivation, perseverance, stamina, um, not taking rejections personally and keep going until I achieve my aim. So that's, that's how it was. Yeah. MFA is good and bad and ugly, but it depends on uh, who you're asking, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think, you know, like that's what you're describing is just this really um, I think it's a it's a really difficult thing for writers to kind of get right, but I think you eventually have to figure out how to make your own peace with it if you're gonna keep doing it, which is like you have to kind of remain like sort of perpetually excited about the work, but you have to have a really short memory about like everything else involved in the process. Mm. I know before I started working on this project, I was um, a freelance journalist, and so it was the same thing with with pitching articles because it was just like the sheer volume that you would have to produce to be able to like sustain yourself. It's like you just couldn't get precious about anything. It was like, okay, great. Thanks for going ahead and rejecting me so I can try the next person. You know, you just kind of like power through. And you're so much stronger if you don't let all of that break you down because, you know, a lot of a lot of writers, um, and I guess just a lot of creative people in general do not pursue their art or continue to pursue it just because of that that fear of failure. Totally. It's just a human thing. So um, the more people that can work through it, the better. Right. And I, I thought, too, when you were talking about the workshop model and that idea of kind of the the sort of like way it can and can turn everybody's writing into sort of a very similar, very similar things. Um, I was talking with another writer friend the other day and she had mentioned that um, she had written a first draft of something and then she sent it to somebody to read. And I was like, oh, my God, you sent a first draft. <laughs> like, and, it was just of, like, and I think like, you know, part of what you're describing and like part of, I think, a huge pro of like not that I don't think I think this goes beyond the yes or no to an MFA, but like just getting really solid in like what you feel like your voice and your point of view is so that it can't really be mm. shaken apart. Like so that you can hear different feedback and be like, okay, well, that piece makes a good point. This piece I'm going to ignore and sort of feel like you have your own kind of compass for that stuff. Exactly. And the, the stronger you hone your own voice, the more original you make it and, and the more of an expert you are, I believe that other people will just quickly pick up on that and trust you as a writer, right? Like when people read an initial draft of Black Buck, like, okay, like we know that this guy has a handle on the voice at least, right? There's other things that we yeah. need to work on, but he is the expert on the voice of, of Buck and this book. So we're not going to question it as much. And that for me uh, was big, you know, with my editor from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, with my agent, they never questioned the voice of the book at all. Right. There were things that we tweaked and copy editing and, and here and there, but they were never like, are you sure you want him to sound this way at this point? There were never questions about that. Right, right. Yeah. So let's let's dive into that, because definitely the voice, you know, when folks read the book, that's that's sort of the first thing that um, that hooks you in. And I think, you know, especially when you're going to do a first person narrative like that, you need you need a voice that can really carry it. Did Darren Buck uh, come to you pretty, pretty fully formed in that way? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess, uh, you know, I was, I was lucky in that, you know, the night I wrote it was that night I wrote the author's note. And I knew that I was going to begin 
uh, a third book and you know for, from the two that uh didn't go anywhere and it just hit me it was like a really you know how some writers discuss in like a woo woo transcendental way that they they were imbued by the power of some supernatural force that's what it was this author's note just came out of me and i had a friend i was at my parents house on long island and i had a friend with me and i said hold up just listen to what i just like wrote and let me know what you think so i read it and she said you wrote that just now i said yes and that author's note years later is basically the same. Right. That voice, I just allowed myself to have a lot of fun. I allowed myself to go into the darker parts of my humor, my own humor. Um, but I also had to understand who Darren was as a character separate from myself because he does say that he does say things and he does speak in certain ways and he does, he, he takes certain actions that I wouldn't. Right. He's, he is a separate person from me, but I had to get to know him just like all the other characters. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, when you talk about the author's note, I just want to also like clarify for folks, because um, the book is sort of written, it's it's written kind of like a sales manual, right? Or like a like a book that you might like, a, almost like a business self help kind of book that you might pick up. Um, and and that format gets a little bit of a surprise at the end that that I think we can talk about without ruining. But um, so yeah, this this author's note is sort of like this very direct address, you know, even it's sort of this like, you know, first person is already such an intimate form of storytelling. And then the author's note is this kind of very explicit, like, hey, you, this is what I'm about to do right now. Um, and and I think, yeah, you, I, I really would love to learn more about the point that you're making, because, you know, you do have a background in in sales and in start the startup world that Darren finds himself in. And, and so how did you kind of navigate that, that idea of like, imbuing him with your own kind of experience and ideas and observations, but also making him his own person. Yeah. Um, just a quick note on the author's note. Wow. Uh, you know, no pun intended, but some people believe that the author's note is me, the author, Matteo oh, Scarifor, beginning okay. the book. Yeah. Yeah. Some people don't realize that it says book at the bottom and they think that this <laughs> is me. And, and I've also found, I still read reviews. I still read reviews on Goodreads and other places. I found that, some people think this book is a straight up memoir. <laughs> like, like people don't realize it's fiction all the time. And I'm like, damn, that's cool that they <laughs> think that this is all really real. But at the same time, it, it opens up the book to critiques that uh, don't really make sense because it is fiction, right? right but right. to answer your question directly, Courtney, um, it, it started off with the realization and then holding that realization at the forefront of my mind that this book is not about me. This, this is not about me. This isn't about uh, my experience one-to-one -one in the world uh, of startups. This isn't about um, my interpersonal relationships, even though the book is definitely inspired by my, my work in the world of startups and by some of my interpersonal relationships and things that I've experienced. But it couldn't just be about me because A, I don't think that it, it would have been that interesting B, it would have made it a lot more difficult for me to achieve the aims that I had for the book. And I don't know if, if I've achieved them yet. I'll see. Time will tell, right? I'm still figuring, I'm still figuring that out. But the aims of making anyone who's been made to feel less than, um, a variety marginalized backgrounds, you know, whether that is, that's race, um, gender expression, sexual orientation or religion, especially in the workplace understand that they shouldn't be they shouldn't have been made to feel less than and that they have the right just as much as anyone else 
to chase their dreams and in some cases achieve it. I think that that would have been a lot harder if it was just about me, 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 me. So when putting Darren together, I, I just, you know, from his background to his life experience, I had to make it differ from myself. But where we are very much so the same is, you know, the feelings that we've had, the feelings of being the other in various scenarios, the feelings of people saying that you have potential and then being given the opportunity in a very extreme way to fulfill it without the proper guidance. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a lot of intersecting forces, but I had to understand that Darren is not me and, and I wouldn't want him to be me. You know, that, that wouldn't be fair to him or the book or the reader. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think all of that, you know, I think to, to speak to your aims, you know, I think that does really come across and like, you know, there were, um, you know, just like even to think about like my own experience, there was, there's this point at which, uh, you know, Darren is, has been sort of like welcomed into this weird company and, um, and he sort of like learns how the other new recruits got there. Um, mm -hmm. and like all the connections that they had that like led them there. And, um, I, it made me feel, you know, when I, when I first went to graduate school, I went to NYU, but I'm from West Virginia. And so, you know, I, I didn't really have like any kind of experience like that. And I remember like getting there and like hearing about all of the other schools that people went, like, I had no idea what like a liberal arts school was. And like, people were talking about these like crazy prestigious places that they were. And I was just like, oh, this is very different. <laughs> And like, oh, yeah. I think part of what's so successful about the book is like the themes that run through it, run through it micro and macro in like really kind of, you sort of just like hit all of these, these small details where the stuff where it really rings true. And then of course, like the larger issues that are at play, like all of these cringy conversations that, that Darren has to have with, with people like Rhett and Clyde and, um, well, Clyde, I don't even want to put in a cringy category. He's like his own <laughs> category. I don't want to, I don't want to say how, how bad he is, but you know, like Rhett and the whole, like, you know, race is a dirty word, but people love to talk about diversity and it's just like, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, that's why I was a little hesitant to say that I, to start off by saying that it sounded like you had so much fun. Cause I don't want to trivialize the really serious things that you're talking about here. And how did that kind of come together for you? Cause I can see that being a really difficult needle to thread of like, you're, you're kind of mining the absurdity of these things that are absurd, but are also, you know, really difficult to, to deal with emotionally. Yeah. Well, first off, shout out to NYU. I went there undergrad. <laughs> so, nice. so I know what you mean. Um, <laughs> and that it, it's also funny talking about that conversation that Darren has with the Duchess and Frodo, because in a lot of these environments that I, I know you're well aware of, one of the main questions is like, where did you go to college? Right. And when I was working at a, at a tech startup, that was the main question too. It's even how some people wanted to hire people. Mm -hmm. And I had to push back on that. I, I wanted it to be a little bit more nuanced um, in that way because I could have just had everyone ask, right? Where did you go to college? In the same way that there's the running joke of everyone thinking that Darren looks like a different black celebrity. I considered, <laughs> I considered putting the college thing in there. And just making it really ridiculous. And I was like, eh, that's, that's, that's a little too much. My first draft, it's way too long anyway. It was like 168,000 words. And now the book is at like 110. But in terms of weighing that balance, that's a question that a lot of people ask me because, you know, there is on the one hand, this very funny aspect to it. There's a lot of humor in it. But then they, on the other hand, uh, there's the horror 
of everything that Darren experiences and how he changes in such a drastic uh, way that's detrimental to, to himself and, and those who love him. And for me, I was conscious of it because I didn't want to write this book that was just so laden with tragedy and doom and gloom. Like we, we know that. We know that in America, even if not everyone internalizes it, that racism is bad, that you shouldn't treat people poorly. Um, and there's been so many other writers, so many other black writers that have done this throughout recent history uh, to a far better effect than I could. So for me, when I was writing the book, I was like, I want this to be full of multiple climaxes. I want you to not be able to characterize what it is or what it isn't for too long mm -hmm. because it's going to change. But, but honestly, what made it, I guess, easiest for me to write in this way where it, it's fun and then it's tragic from chapter to chapter is that it's just a natural function of my own mind. Mm. Um, I get, you know, really upset about things, especially related to race in America and racial inequality and just history. But then at the same time, I'm not a naturally angry person or naturally sad person. There's a lot of, there's a lot of humor uh, throughout my day and in my mind, maybe as a defense mechanism, honestly. So that's why I thought that it'd be important for the reader to be able to feel that. But the last thing I'll say is it's dangerous to do that because some people aren't going to see the horror in it. They're just going to think that this is like funny mm -hmm. all the time. 400 pages of funny, funny. Oh, this is so funny what happened, Darren. This is so funny what this guy said. We got this guy Frodo XYZ. And it's not my responsibility to judge how someone reads the book or try to impress my own intentions upon them. And that's the beautiful thing about fiction and writing in general. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there could certainly even be people who think like, well, that would never happen. Something like that could never happen. Oh, many people think that. Yeah, many people think that. Um, kind of on that line, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you about um, sort of working within this framework of satire um, and I think, because I think what the book does really well and what's so tricky, and I was thinking about it afterward, like, when did I kind of like, did I, did I ever consciously sort of like sign on? And I don't think I ever needed to, but like, you know, the voice is so strong and the world is so well built that it sort of can't, things do, as you say, multiple climaxes, things ratchet up and ratchet up and ratchet up and, and kind of, you know, I, I know the book gets, gets compared a lot to Sorry to Bother You and I see why, but Sorry to Bother You know is a little bit, goes more absurd maybe, but like, well, not maybe, yes, it's a whole different, <laughs> great movie, love that movie, but yeah, very different thing. Um, but you do kind of, as the reader, keep, um, you just keep buying into it again and again and again. And I wondered if that was something that um, you kind of had to recalibrate as you, you know, maybe even as you're having conversations with readers and editors, or was there ever a sort of like credibility or believability sort of like, I don't know, hurdle that you had to kind of smooth out as, as these crazier and crazier events happen? I'm so happy that you asked that question. Um, that for me was important because I wanted there to be like in a video game, new bosses at the end of every part, new stages or a new hurdle. Because in some of in some of the movies, especially mob movies like Goodfellas, there's always a next challenge. There's always a next, like a bigger heist. They want to rob an airline. You know what I'm saying? Like there's right, always right. something bigger. And for me as, as the reader, I was like, that's what would keep me engaged if things get crazier and crazier. However, 
there is a question of plausibility, right? Because mm-hmm. if you go too far, then you could lose readers who thought this book was really sincere and earnest and rooted in reality. And then you can have readers say, hey, yeah, I thought most of this was good, but this feels more, you know, fantastic. Like, like it's just not, it's not as real. It's pretty absurd. I can't believe it. And to that, I say, listen, what's absurd is, is comes down to who you are and the experiences that you've had. Because for me, everything in this book, while it does get really crazy and it goes to crazy lengths um, and people take it to crazy places, I could actually see all of this happening. And there are crazier things that have happened this year that have happened over the past couple of years. You know, an example I use is what if 10 years ago you tell the American public there's going to be this reality TV guy who's on on your small screen and then he's going to one day become president. You'd say that's that's fiction. That can't happen. And then look what happened. But um, to go back to the original question, I didn't want to stray way too far from what was plausible in the world that I created. And I don't think I did because just from the beginning of when Darren enters someone, it's a crazy place. And I've, mm-hmm. I've worked at a place that was way crazier than what I even put in this book. That <laughs> was way more intense. And there's a lot of wild stuff going on. Um, so I think that within the confines of the world that I created, Everything is plausible, but some people won't agree. It'll be so outside the scope of what they could even believe um, pertaining to, to, to reality, even Darren's reality, that they're going to think it's absurd. And that's okay, too. That's fine. Read it how you want. Just read right, it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like a salesman, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's so interesting, of course, you know, nobody can ever really... Um, plan these things about when a book is coming out and and what's happening in the world around it. But like, you know, Black Buck is kind of coming out in in the wake of um, a bunch of of these sorts of reckonings across industries, you know, publishing has certainly been dealing with it. And you think about tech, you know, kind of in its own way is is fumbling toward it. And um, did you feel like this is sort of like, I don't know, were, were you were you kind of aware of how that's such a, that's such a weird question. I know to be like, could you see the future? And were you Mm -hmm. aware of all of these things happening? But, you know, maybe like as the, you know, you said you started in 2018 as the draft went on, you know, how did kind of what was actually happening in the world inform how the story was taking shape? Yeah. um, Funny because a guy asked me this too. So speaking of, of sales, my brother and I were in Dumbo just taking some like, promo photos um and there was there was this dude in a mask white guy and he's like what are you what are you guys doing and we tell him and then i tell him about my book and then i say you know what he had an ipad i said bring up barnes and nobles and go get this book right now and he says okay he said i will and then when i was telling him about the book he said wow oh, this is just so relevant to today so relevant to what's going on that's crazy this book is going to do really well and i said well you know whatever his name was chuck i said you know chuck I wrote this book in 2018 and I was working in tech in, you know, from like October, 2012 to up until 2018, but I was at the company from October, 2012 to August, 2018. So I'd experienced a lot of this beforehand. So to answer your question directly, Courtney, um, what was going on in the world didn't affect my book at all. I was writing Mm -hmm. the book very rooted in my own reality and the reality of other people that, you know, they've, that we in this country have experienced 
for decades, right? If not, if not hundreds of years. Some of my favorite writers, John A. Williams, for example, um, Iceberg Slim, who I sometimes hesitate to mention because his book, it's like a, a guilty favorite. And if anyone okay. ever, if anyone ever reads Pimp, they're going to understand why. It's just really visceral. He does, visceral. He does, um, a lot of unsavory and, and just downright wrong things to people. Um, but it's the voice that I love most. But the point that I'm getting to here is these people wrote these books in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're like companion books to Black Buck. So, uh, it's cliche, I feel like, to say, um, but a lot of what's going on today has just been going on and now people know about it and now it's more of a thing. But I am hoping that because it's more of a thing, there will be real systemic change and it's not just going to be a passing moment. It's such a tricky part of the conversation of like, there's only so much knowledge that anybody who's not in those positions can have. And so then how do they kind of engage with all of that stuff sort of on in, in sort of the best faith that they can, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's almost like it didn't need to be satire in a sense, you know, it's like, it's, a, it's like, it's not, it's taking things to some extreme, but as you've said, not too far of an extreme. Um, and I've, I've read you write about John A. Williams, who I have not read, I have to confess, but I really enjoyed that piece. And that was part of the Black Cannon piece on LitHub, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, my first time working with LitHub. And, you know, going back to earlier in the conversation, you spoke about your own journalism career and pitching. Mm-hmm. So before I ever even had an agent, I was pitching a bunch of essays. Because I said, you know, this will be a good way for me to get my name out, uh, for me to make some money from writing, and for me to connect with editors if I'm able to be successful in pitching. And pitching was a way that I was able to, you know, hone my own sort of just speaking with people in the world of literature. And that piece right there opened up a couple doors. And I was able to see what resonated with people and what types of writing I was interested in. Um, But yeah, I I really enjoyed writing that piece, too. Spread the love with WMFA merch, items designed to spark creative vibes for you and the artists in your life. Shop at WMFAPodcast.com slash merch. That's WMFAPodcast.com slash M-E-R-C-H. What I was thinking about as you were as you were talking about the sort of companions that you think about Black Buck kind of having across across space and time, you know, um, a thing that often comes up on the show when I talk to writers who are, you know, maybe first generation American writers or have written stories, you know, from, um, you know, Asian American or Latino American, these sort of different points of view is this idea of the pressure that is is present there to sort of be this mouthpiece for a community um, as if it were this kind of monolithic thing. Um, was that something that, that kind of you thought about at all in, in this process and, you know, kind of, again, threading that needle between like, well, this is the story I want to tell, but like, do I feel like I have to be this sort of like tour guide for, you know, what the what the Black experience could be like in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually listened to an episode that you had with the Pam Zhang. And uh, how how much of these hills is gold is probably the best book that I read this year. It's stunning. Yeah. Wow. But anyway, I don't, I don't even know her. Shout out to her though. But no, I don't. I don't feel that burden. Like for me, growing up, almost all of my friends, due to like I don't know socioeconomic status or the fact that like I played soccer, all of them were white, right? So I I grew up knowing the expectations that people outside of your specific race have of you to 
either be like their token friend or to be the spokesperson for an entire race and all of that. And it's just, it's nothing that I'm interested in whatsoever. And it, I, I just feel like it'd also be super disrespectful to, for me to sit here and say, I can be the spokesperson for black people or even for the, the, the black people who have been, you know, minorities in the workplace. Now, right? Speaking from my own experience and speaking from what I feel is a general consensus, sometimes I'm going to do that. Sometimes I'm going to say, hey, I, I, I'm betting that a lot of people who have been in this scenario feel like this. But understand that I'm not putting a stake in the ground saying everyone feels like this or everyone must feel like this. So if ever anyone's like, hey, you know, can you tell us about uh, the black experience in the workplace or can you tell us how black people are feeling today? You know, like it's like it's the weather forecast. And they listen, man, I, I can only talk about myself. Um, how I feel, I have four brothers. How I feel is probably very different or, or slightly different from how some of my other brothers feel, from how my mother, black woman feels, you know? And you mentioned first generation. I'm first generation American. Um, my mom, she hails from Jamaica. My father is from Iran. So very like different backgrounds. And, um, that definitely played a role in, in the way that I see the world in the universality of, of blackness that I see where we are so connected in many ways, but then there are also, you know, differences just as with anyone. So, uh, yeah, I had no interest in, in being a tour guide. And honestly, when I wrote the book in the author's note, you see Buck, you know, written by me, says that this book is intended for black people. But if you're not black and reading it, then, you know, in a funny way, he says you can adopt a fancy black name. Don't go overboard and wear an afro and blackface, but, you know, sit back and enjoy the ride. And that, that is one of my intentions in that when anyone reads the book, but especially non-Black people read it, this is an invitation for you into the world of Darren and then Buck and his experience. Um, but this isn't like him trying to reach out his hand and say, hey, I'm going to hold your hand and tell you exactly how it is to be black in America, because I just feel like it's ridiculous for someone to try that. Right. Yeah. And, and I like earlier, you made the distinction between Buck and Darren. There was such a wonderful detail is this fact that he immediately kind of gets like rechristened by these bosses and, and sort of the way that that lets you kind of do this sort of Jekyll and Hyde thing with him. How was it for you in the writing process when he, you know, you said he did stuff that you wouldn't necessarily do. And uh, did you get frustrated with him? Did you get like, were you sad by some of the choices he made? How did you kind of engage with him as a character as, as he kind of grew in the, in the narrative? Yeah. You know, I'm actually taking my, my cue from you here, Courtney, because early in the conversation, you said Darren Buck, like within the same second. And for me, it's just so interesting also how people make the distinction between them. There are some people who say that Buck is Darren's alter ego, and then other people who say that he mm. crossed over into being Buck. And I, I actually very purposely in a scene have him say, you know, fuck Darren, I'm Buck. You know, I, I did that on purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm also so happy that you picked up on this rechristening because this is what happens in so many environments, but especially in the world of startups, like where I was, <laughs> you had people being given nicknames. And it was like, I had like mm -hmm. three different nicknames uh, when I was working on a startup. And it allows you to assume a different identity and become a new person. But in, in terms of Buck and the choices he made, yeah, I definitely don't agree with a lot of them. There, there are probably two or three key moments when I had to sit back as I was writing. I was like, this is actually pretty tough to write right now because 
he is inflicting so much pain on other people, Mm -hmm. people that love him unconditionally because he is so hurt. And, you know, people, people say hurt people, hurt people. And being like the Geppetto that was pulling the strings and having him do all this wasn't easy because, um, I don't know, this might get a little weird, but I think about the world beyond the page. And I think about the people reading this and how real this book will feel to them. You have to think about the choices as a writer, right? I'm having Buck, a black man, subject some other black people and other people of color close to him to pain. And I don't look at that as like an easy choice. I'm not just like, oh, well, fuck it. He's going to hurt this this guy and his, his girlfriend and his best friend and whatever. This is just the plot. I don't know. For me, it's actually a lot more serious than that because I think it reflects reality and that it can influence the way people actually act in real life. I don't know. I might be taking on way too much responsibility, but that's that's the way I look at it. I get that. And, and it's, you know, as part of why I asked the question, because like, of course, as writers, you know, you have to figure out how to like, get on the same wavelengths with those characters, no matter what you're putting them through. But I think because like, there is this shift. And I don't know, I mean, like, again, as you say, part of the beauty of fiction is all the different ways that people can read it. I think to me, I did read it as this sort of crossing over that happens. Um, And I think he feels like he's kind of got, you know, got it under control until he doesn't have it under control in the same way anymore. And then he kind of like tries to, to, you know, he sort of like wakes up and tries to right the wrongs that he's sort of been involved in. But um, I guess, yeah, that's part of why it's felt especially poignant to me with him more than it might with just another character who is flawed and does, you know, makes mistakes and and does shitty things because we're human and we all do shitty things. Yeah. And you know, um, I, I listened to the episode that you had with uh, the great Alexander Chi and him talking about autofiction. And there's, there's, you really did your homework. I appreciate, I appreciate you listening to the show. I'm, I'm, pre- I'm prepared, but I only, I only listen to the people that uh, I, you know, I read their work and I loved it. And, um, and it's funny because, you know, I had an interaction with Alexander Chi once after he had an event. Probably doesn't remember me all that much, but he was exactly as you mentioned in the episode he was just so helpful yeah. so generous with some random young writer he didn't know but the point of bringing him up is he discusses autofiction right and how he never really cared to learn more about the real lives of the authors that he was reading so i am navigating this myself because a question that so many people ask is how much right. of this is real how much of you are buck and the, the the point of bringing this up is just to say that buck losing himself um and and just going into this other world at at the stake of his core and those who love him is something uh-huh. that happened to me or not even happened to me it's something that I did when I was very much so embedded in the world of sales and the startup the startup was the only thing I cared about it was a vacuum I had all of my friends I had um people I was you know uh, or at least a person I was romantically engaged with um you have food you are partying, you get clothing with the merch, you don't need to leave. So I was sucked in deep to the point where, you know, I said I'm originally from Long Island, that's about an hour, an hour and a half from, from where I was working. I wouldn't see my family for months at a time. I was screening my mother's call. So it was difficult to write some of those aspects. But yeah, it was just, you know, there, there's definitely some similarities in that way. And, you know, hopefully uh, people can feel that. 
Right, right. It's funny that you bring up Alexander Chi and the autofiction thing because I'm the exact opposite. And I, I want to know so like I love reading like writer biographies. Like I love like the like sort of like cla like I'm a big Virginia Woolf fan. I've read like mm. four different Virginia Woolf biographies. <laughs> wow. like, I'm just super into like they all say basically the same thing. I'm yeah. just like I get very into the the sort of surrounding context. Um, so yeah, I, I you know I totally take his point too. But it's so funny because I'm just like no, I need all the information that I can get. I want to know too, right? It comes down to the question of separating an art from the artist, totally. right? I want to I want to know who they are too, and um, it, it may at times influence how I how I perceive their work. So it's important, I think. Um. Also on the on the uh, reference to Alexander Chi, I wanted to ask you, and I wanted to make sure to do it kind of in a um, specific spot so we can make a note to skip it for anybody who wants to not have this spoiled. Because um, I'm really curious about the answer to this, but it does kind of reveal something important about the way the narrative unfolds. Um, so Alexander Chi, when he was on, talked about this idea of the point of telling, right? And mm -hmm. like, you know, where, why is the story coming out when it's coming out and and so you know we learn eventually that buck um is is writing this from prison um and and so i wanted to talk to you about you know i think the whole kind of sales manual framing is so ingenious it's like it's already a twist and then it twists it a little bit more and it's just like this really I don't know. It was this just kind of delicious, like revelation. <laughs> I was like, Oh, perfect. Perfect. I don't know. I was just like very into it. Um, mm. When you wrote the author's note, did you know that that's where he was? Or was this just kind of this like voice from the ether and you had to, had to find your way to it? No. So there's a ton of spontaneity in the book. Uh, that's the way that I wrote it. There was no outline, right? I was, I was understanding the book more and more every day that I was writing it. And I probably knew like a day in advance of where I wanted it to go. But beyond that, other than this main twist, I didn't really know it was going to happen. So from the beginning, I knew about this twist. And I had to figure out um, how to get us there, but how to also build in, like we were saying earlier, multiple climaxes. And I wanted there to be a couple twists. And there's, there's definitely two solid twists in there, right, sure. uh, occur occurring towards the end like a whodunit, and then, uh, you know, this reveal. So I definitely had that in the beginning. And I wanted to throw the reader, maybe not off balance, but just to share some perspective, right? Because you have this guy giving you all this game and this insight about how to get free, but he's locked up. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want someone to know that at the beginning. I thought that it would be, as you said, a lot more satisfying for them to realize this at the end and for them to, to realize his penthouse where he's living, this building, which is actually a real place, the Lincoln Correctional Facility, which has since shut down, um, is where he's writing this from. You know, I thought that that would just be, be, like you said, satisfying. And some people feel that way, you know, in terms of the reviews that I've read, they say, wow, you know, that was super satisfying, that it makes sense within this world of Black Buck, that with everything that was going on, that this is what would happen. But it feels like most people actually don't like that that happened. They don't like mm. that he went to jail. And they're like, it should have ended on a happy note. When I was writing it, I said, he's in jail, but he's free. And he's feeling so good. And he created this movement that lives beyond him. This feels like, like a success. And he's not going to be there forever. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that twist was definitely uh, built into it. And the reveal 
was calculated, but everything surrounding it, I didn't even know until a certain point about Trey's involvement. You know, I, I had to, I had to sort of rack my brain for a little bit and be like, okay, how did he get here? Like, what happened? And then I thought about uh, the HBO show with Steve Buscemi, Boardwalk Empire, uh-huh. and how at the end of the entire series, he's betrayed by someone that was close to someone who he basically took care of. And I mm-hmm. said, you know what? That's it. So I need to figure out how to translate that. And there's a lot of that in this book. There, there are moments that I was inspired by other um, forms of art or other works of art that I, I hold to high esteem that I was like, I want to incorporate this into the book, but obviously in my own way by giving tribute to them. Well, like, yeah, we talked, you know, earlier in the conversation about, about mob movies and it's the same sort of like one last job kind of thing, you know, yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. like, we've got to do this thing. And it told, and it comes up the part of why I think it's successful. I mean, I understand, you know, people might not agree, but like, um, is that it's so incremental, like the the moment where it's just like, okay, well, this is just like this tiny little issue in front of my way, and then we're clear, and it's fine. Like you can just see with the calculus of just like, okay, well, this I'll just do this real fast, and then and then we're going to be done. Um, yeah. And it makes perfect sense that in that situation, that's how that's how you would approach it. But yeah, that's funny. Um, and I love that idea too, generally, because I find that often a lot of the um, a lot of the art that kind of most inspires me to write is not always writing. Mm. You know, like it's a it's a lot of like film or photography or like other things that are really. Um, I mean, th- there are definitely writers who make me who I read and it makes me want to go write. But you know, sometimes it's nice to have just like that that sort of distance. It's almost like a different translation or something. Well, yeah, that that realization was a turning point for me when I I realized. Um, or at least I was sold on via Stephen King's on writing that I need to consume as much art as possible and as many different types of it. And when I began doing that, my mind was unlocked. And I think my writing was opened up to all these different modes of expression and things that I can incorporate in my own work and risks that I could take. And I, I say risk because I didn't know that this, that this was, that this was going to work out. I didn't know when I wrote that author's note that this was going to be the book. I hoped that it would be, you know, the one that would get me an agent, the one that would become published, but beyond that, the one that would feel truest. But I wasn't sure. And it's actually, I don't know, a little concerning or scary to think that in an alternate reality, I could be working on like my sixth book right now, trying to get on still instead of speaking with you. Uh, It's just wild. (laughs) That's a really good segue into, um, as you probably know, the question that I always like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you? Creative satisfaction um, for me looks like living into my purpose. And I, I think that every few years I redefine my purpose just for who I am at that point in life. And right now, I believe um, my purpose is to turn my ideas into art that positively impact and influence others. So that, that's what creative satisfaction and what creative success means to me. You know, when I, when I get a message from a reader who says, wow, this really spoke to me and I feel seen in ways that I haven't been seen before, or wow, this was a crazy idea and the writing was crazy and what takes place is super wild where you pulled it off in a way that truly resonated with me beyond the page. That, that feels incredible. You know, this morning I, I received a message from a woman who said that she's been working 
as an account manager for seven years, and she's a person of color. And that reading this book opened up her, her eyes to the lack of sales training that she had and taught her new things that she could incorporate into her job. You know, if I, if I can extrapolate that to a bigger sphere, maybe that will help her accrue more money, right? Which will help her and her family get ahead in, in, in a way materially, or just even allow her to, to go and splurge and get that pair of shoes she wants or vacation and, and increase her, her joy, at least for a moment. So that for me, Courtney, man, it's just the, the definition of creative satisfaction success right now. I love that. Well, this has been a delight. I hope it has been all right for you too. <laughs> it's been great, Courtney. This is the first time I've been able to geek out about writing with like yes. any of these interviews. That's what we're here for. I love to hear it. All righty. Cheers. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier. Or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the LitHub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.